Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today is Ian Easton, the Senior Director at the Project 2049 Institute to formally normalize relations between the United States and Taiwan. He is the author of a new book, The Final Struggle, Inside China's Global Strategy. His first book was The Chinese Invasion Threat, Taiwan's Defense and American Strategy in Asia. Ian, great to have you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us. Vago, it's great to be on the program. I am honored and really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, thanks very much for the kind words. I'm very excited for the conversation on what is an important book at an important time. Uh, before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, Ian, your, your book is the, is the latest work to reveal the malevolent nature of the Chinese regime and its global design, something Beijing has been crystal clear about for decades in its own writings, but um, hid all of that under the the hide and bide strategy uh, that's uh, been in place for many decades. The the strategy actually, which Xi Jinping has effectively scrapped, uh, scrapped, right? The message was, no, 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 we're peaceful. We seek mutual benefits, um, allowing many in Washington, the West and and the world to live in sort of a very convenient denial about what China was up to. Uh, Now there's a realization and the alarm bells are ringing. And I think we're starting to get on the right track, even if some, including you, worry that we might be too late. Let's start off with why did you call the book The Final Struggle? I called it the final struggle because I was watching a major speech that Xi Jinping was giving in 2018. And at the end of the speech, they played uh, the international, which is a song inspired by the, the communist manifesto. And it was the early national anthem of the Bolsheviks, the Soviet Union, uh, the Chinese Soviet uh, Republic. Um, And then ultimately now it's become the closing number for all major political events in China. And there's a line in there that says, we will be masters of the world. This is the final struggle. Join together and achieve international communism. And it really struck me that this is something that they play at major Chinese political events. And then I started to read other speeches that Xi Jinping was giving. I started to read his books. And he talks a lot about struggle and especially struggle against the American-led world order. Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean other people aren't out to get you, uh, right, uh, is, uh, is, is the mantra. The Chinese have been very clear in their writings. Uh, this stretches back to uh, Andy Marshall in the Office of Net Assessment, uh, the, former, uh, the founder and the former great uh, director of the Office of Net Assessment, who was actually investing in translating these Chinese works, right? Because we, you know, the, the answer for decades, Ian, as you know, was, uh, well, we don't really know what their intentions are, even when their writings would make it abundantly clear uh, what their uh, intentions actually uh, were. Uh, you argue that the China's plan is nothing less than world domination. And if you look at it across almost every sphere, uh, that's exactly what the Chinese are trying to do, whether it's economic, diplomatic, uh, and indeed in terms of building up its military capability. What is China's plan? And what does domination mean to them? Because you make clear that right to to different peoples, uh, th- it means different things. It may mean something different to us than how the Chinese mean it. Talk to us about how, um, wh- what the Chinese are up to and what they mean in the language that they're using. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I think for Americans, when we think of the idea of world domination, and that's a very emotionally charged term, it brings back memories of of Nazi Germany and the Empire of Japan. It it brings back kind of vivid memories of World War II, to a certain degree, uh, memories of the Cold War with the Soviet Union. We tend to think of it in highly militaristic terms. We think of it as a contest between militaries. We, we tend to think that this is an issue that the Pentagon can solve for us. That's not at all how Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party elite talk about it, write about it, and are trying to put it into action. For them, military power is just one instrument of statecraft. Statecraft also involves diplomacy. It involves building infrastructure on the world. It involves controlling the next generation of technology, controlling the internet, controlling the narrative, controlling what does and does not get taught in universities around the world, what books do and do not get published, and ultimately what happens at the United Nations and in other other international organizations and in corporate boardrooms around the world, because that is true world domination, is if you can control all of that, you can influence and shape all of that and create what Xi Jinping refers to and what Chinese Communist Party and, and PLA text referred to as a new world order. This would be a world that is made in China's image. So it would be uh, highly centralized and deeply oppressive. Um, you uh, talk about sort of right, all all uh, technological roads leading uh, to China, right? I mean, almost all of our products, we're surrounded by almost everything that's made in China, whether it's our iPhones or anything else. Um, you know, Internet of Things, investment in artificial intelligence to the point where, uh, and a lot of these do go back to to uh, China, uh, ultimately. Have have the Chinese actually, Ian, worked against their own interests and has she really screwed up? Because had he waited maybe another decade, it would have been unstoppable, but he didn't and he couldn't. And the wolf warrior diplomacy um, and so much of the rhetoric has everybody so concerned that it seems like it has been now that the new administration does have a new tone of collaboration, it's bringing more people to its side to stand up, whether they're almost every nation in Europe, uh, whether it's most of the countries that are in the Asia Pacific. Nobody wants to formally choose because they're so economically dependent. And I would say Japan falls in that category also, right? I mean, you have to be, it's pretty admirable how Japan has stood up given its economic dependency on China. But the world is actually organizing against it. And Chinese friends of mine, whether um, um, and sources I've had over a long period of time, whether they were in uniform, whether they were diplomatic, whether they were business, have all said that the Chinese system is more about the illusion of control than actual control. And actually, Chinese don't really like living in an increasingly authoritarian universe, right? Um, you know, walk, walk us through whether or not this plan for domination um, is as as realistic now as it may have been, say, three, even three years ago? Well, I would love to believe, uh, I would take great comfort in the idea that Xi Jinping has made a terrible strategic mistake and that the free world or democracies around the world have woken up and they are taking actions accordingly. But I don't think that's true. Uh, I think if we had truly woken up and if Xi Jinping had truly made a mistake, we would not be going to Best Buy today and seeing all of our electronics products made by companies that, according to the U.S. government, are have links to Chinese intelligence and the Chinese military. But unfortunately, 
whether it's smart TVs or drones or home security systems, laptops, desktops, uh, white goods like GE appliances, for example, that are connected to the Internet of Things. All of that today is made by Chinese state-owned enterprises or by Chinese companies that are controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. And we're all investing in it. And the U.S. government so far, while uh, protecting itself by getting those same electronics like Lenovo, for example, out of the Pentagon, uh, it's, they've done nothing to uh, restrict that from the American consumer market. Uh, investors in Wall Street continue to invest in companies that are known to be malign actors, that are known to be undermining our national security. We still have Chinese infrastructure, Ch Chinese government controlled infrastructure in our country, in our prisons, in our police departments, in our banks, in our hospitals, and in our ports. And so until we start to tackle these types of problems, to my mind, we've not even started to become serious about strategic competition with China. Uh, but we're in a uh, uh, democracy. Uh, it's a capitalist system. Uh, you know, the, the mantra and the argument has been that, you know, people are living better than they've ever lived because they can get the same thing at Target that's made in China uh, for $1.50 instead of $4. Uh, I'm one of the people, Ian, who's always looked for made in USA as a label. Uh, I used to buy Ticonderoga pencils, even though they were a dollar more. Uh, if there was a tool set, I would buy the American one. Uh, if I could, and then prioritize, right? I mean, I'd go Japan, Taiwan, Germany, whatever, as long as it, it wasn't necessarily Chinese. But I know that a lot of people, including those who are very, very fervent, you know, sort of America first folks didn't do that and would mock me and say like, look, I mean, you know, that thing, those clamps, Vago, cost $1.50. Why'd you buy the $4 ones that came from Pennsylvania? Um, right, I mean, ultimately it's self-interest that's driving this. And that self-interest is being, you know, re reflected in members of, uh, you know, in members of Congress and the laws the, the nation ultimately makes, right? What is, I want to get into some of the mechanics of this uh, in, in, a, in a moment, but what do you propose that we change and do differently? Because right now Americans uh, are buckling, um, you know, at inflation costs that in the wake of a massive pandemic, uh, in the wake of too much money chasing too few goods, right? I mean, folks got money, got money from the government, whether in the form of PPP or other sorts of uh, assistance. They're, they've been locked down. They're looking to get out. They're looking to travel. They're looking to buy a new truck. Uh, we right-sized supply chains because you know we couldn't even store oil. It was costing money to store oil. You couldn't give oil away uh, you know, when, when, when the pandemic happened. And, and you know, now we have a war with Ukraine that's driving food and energy prices even higher, right? I mean, they're buckling at those costs. Now you're suggesting we apply more costs to this system. How is it that we need to more strategically think about this if we're going to change the vector? Well, I think strategically, it does not make sense for the U.S. government to allow companies in Wall Street, financial firms to invest in the success of the PLA. It is not strategic when the Pentagon buys uh, logistical capability, for example, from companies that are being supplied by, by the Chinese government, uh, that we're investing in the success of, of our adversary. We're investing in the success of a country that uh, is weakening our democracy. Obviously, freedom of speech in, in our country, freedom of uh, expression has been weakened. We've seen that in Hollywood. We've seen that in the NBA. We've seen that uh, in men's tennis, where they've not felt able to stand up um, and protest and, and cancel matches in China uh, and stand in solidarity with women's tennis, which, of course, is protesting uh, 
because of what's happened to, to Peng Shui and, and the terrible tragedy that is going on in the plight of women in China, for example. Um, and so we have a very difficult problem. And to my mind, if the U.S. government continues to invest taxpayer money into things like PP&E from China, or for example, our recent testing kits, um, we all were very happy, I think, to get free testing kits from the U.S. government. Um, when they arrived in my house, I was stunned to learn that they were all made in China. So here we are over, it's been two and a half years since the outbreak of COVID-19. We know the Chinese government was responsible for mismanaging that outbreak and for covering it up and for trying to blame uh, the U.S. military for it and, and spread these conspiracy theories about treatments and about the origin story uh, and did all of these things that made the pandemic much worse for all of us. And yet here we are, our own government is still investing our taxpayer money uh, into being supplied by China. To me, that's not strategic at all. Um, yes, but uh, being strategic also means uh, spending more money uh, on almost everything. Um, and the cost of us doing almost anything is a lot more expensive than almost everybody else on the planet, in part because we are more profit focused. You can make money on health. You, you can't do that, for example, in Europe. I believe it's illegal, uh, right? I mean, you can be a health company and be making a 25% margin or more, uh, and that's perfectly acceptable in our system, right? And so in that system, where everything is about shareholder uh, return, um, getting, you know, or being able to do as much as you can for as little money as you can, right? It, it kind of, I mean, as perverse as it is, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not endorsing us doing that. I'm just saying that it's like, well, I mean, they make more of this stuff more cheaply than we do, and we need to get it into hands of people. We can't wait two years to build a factory, uh, and you know. So, I mean, I, I guess what I'm asking is. Aside from just saying that we won't do it, what are the investment vehicles and other um, things we need to set up, set up just not just in the United States, but with our allies and partners as well, like-minded allies and partners, right? I mean, European governments have the same concerns that we do, uh, right? And their economies are much smaller and they are much more skeptical uh, about what happens. And, and uh, you know, the French, I think, are the most in, in strategically uh, savvy when it comes to these industrial matters. How is it that we have to structure this to go into the direction we want to move into? Because as a capitalist system, everything about our system is about making profit. And, and ultimately, no CEO is going to go to you know, investors and say, all right, well, I'm going to be making 3% now as an all-American business uh, by, by onshoring this capability, right? I mean, how do we make this case, make this case to the financial world to get everybody going in the direction that may be strategically most advantageous for the United States and its partners. Well, I think that that's the key word of strategic, right? Because there's nothing strategic about trying to make a profit for next quarter and maybe the quarter after that by selling your company's uh, critical infrastructure. And that includes human talent, that includes managerial know-how, that includes core technology, selling that away to China. Uh, to your vested enterprise partners in Shanghai or in Shenzhen or outside of Beijing, some industrial complex. But that's what American companies right now are, are choosing to do. They're choosing to trade their long-term strategic interests uh, for short-term profits. And we can see the results. All you have to do is look at what happened to IBM. Now, IBM is no longer an American company. Uh, certainly not the, the parts that make computers and make servers. Uh, those are now owned by Lenovo. IBM got crushed 
by their Chinese competitor by using that very short-term uh, profit-driven mentality. The same thing has happened to Motorola. So Motorola Mobility is now also owned by a PLA um, right. uh, linked company, Lenovo. Same thing has happened to GE Appliances. So all of these great American institutions uh, and, and wonderful companies, wonderful corporations, trusted brand logos have been taken over by their Chinese competitors. There is nothing strategic about that. And unfortunately, it will continue if we continue to do business with China, like China was a normal capitalist country. And of course, it's not. It, it's a country that's engaged in uh, predatory economics. This is a well-known problem. But unfortunately, the U.S. government policy to this day uh, continues to treat China th the same, basically, as we always have when we could be treating China more like we treat Russia, more like we treat North Korea, more like we treat Iran. Uh, it's a policy choice. I mean, it's, it's quite possible that an American company could make a profit uh, today, great profit, doing business with Putin. Do they want to? No. Uh, are they able to? No. The same applies for Iran and for North Korea. It's, it's entirely possible that we could make uh, significant profits by doing business with those regimes, but we don't want to because we know it's not in our fundamental interest. The same ought to start to apply to China. But, but again, not to dwell too much on this, uh, uh, Ian, right? Target would have no products uh, on its shelves, right? So what is, what, what is maybe a different way of looking at this, right? Eric Sayers says, I really don't care whether or not the lawn furniture is made uh, you know, in, in, in China. But you're, you're, you have a more sort of a nuanced view. What's, what's the more nuanced view of, right, that you can still do trade with China? It's just that your issue is certain kinds of trade with China. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I agree with Eric, right? It's, it's one thing to have your TV if it's an LG or a Sony or a Toshiba. If it's made in China, that's one thing. If it's made by T TCL, which the Department of Homeland Security has said has back doors installed because it has a very close relationship with, with China security services, that's a, a different thing entirely that, you know, my computer is HP. It's made in China. I'm comfortable using it. I would not be comfortable, for example, using a Lenovo ThinkPad. And so I think that's, that's a big difference. And that's where perhaps we ought to start is if we know it's a malign company that has a relationship with the PLA, then we should get it off our market and go with something else. Um, let me, let me take you to, um, we, we have to go into a little bit of a, 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 a lightning uh, round on this, but I'm sort of, you know, China is no different from any other rising power, right? It's it's it builds economic strength. It converts the economic strength into military, strategic, diplomatic leverage. Uh, the Britain, you know, whether it's Britain, America, or China, right? I mean, it's the same model. In fact, Chinese uh, officials have said, "Look, our integrated approach. We're mir mirroring the Eisenhower administration, right? Where commercial arms, government arms, research universities were all on the same page. Uh, you know, you know, in order to be able to deliver that soft and hard." Uh, power on a on a on a, a global basis, uh, right? I mean, it doesn't matter if they're British coaling stations or or Chinese run ports. Um, you know, I mean, I guess the end. The question I would ask is: We could have done this. We could have been investing in ports around the world. We we decided not to do that. Um, we created Africa Command uh, almost twenty years ago uh, in order to uh, you know to counter Chinese influence. And again, you know, we we don't exert the necessary influence in Latin America. Right. And Latin Americans go, well, I mean, you guys are up there. The Chinese are across the ocean. They're, they're here and doing business with us. You, you could be doing business with us. 
right? I mean, ultimately, and, and African nations say the same thing. We deal with Africa not because we like, we deal with China not because we like China. It's, it's just that they're here building roads and you guys are uninterested, right? I mean, what do we need to do strategically? Because some of this is really our fault. We, we could have been focused on these market areas and filling these global needs, uh, but we've chosen not to do that, right? I mean, so what's, what's the, what, what are the other parts of the game that we have to step up if we're going to be competing and competing in ideas and for influence uh, against a country that, that was extremely successful even you know, in 1979 in convincing the UN General Assembly to drop Taiwan uh, as the Chinese representative on the Security Council and replace it with Beijing? Well, I think you just said it. Uh, this is about international influence. This is a global contest. It involves uh, infrastructure, it involves trade, it involves diplomacy. And these are all areas that I think we've missed the mark. And, and there are some significant shortcomings um, that the United States has demonstrated. And there's a lot of room for improvement. And I think there's, there's more appetite now to make significant improvements along these areas. Because ultimately, if we don't, the Chinese Communist Party will dominate Africa. They will dominate Central and South America and the Caribbean, and they will increasingly dominate all of Eurasia. And when they dominate, that will mean that human rights suffer. That will mean that good governance suffers. That will mean that democracy ceases to exist. And increasingly, these countries cease to lose, they cease to, to be sovereign entities, that they're not able to decide their own affairs, that they will be uh, proxies or vassals or, or kind of neo-colonialist um, extensions of the, of the Chinese Communist Party, of the PRC. That's something the United States worked very hard to make sure would never happen. In the wake of World War II, we wanted to create a world in which countries could uh, have self-determination. They could uh, decide for themselves what their own political futures look like. China is working very, very hard, China's government is, to create a new authoritarian world order uh, and that runs directly counter to the, I think, the, the principles, the objectives, and, and the interests of the United States and our allies. Uh, the new administration has uh, been working overtime. Kurt Campbell, who uh, you know, has uh, uh, really been spearheading an enormous wave of activity to try to bring allies and partners together around the world uh, to uh, better stand up to uh, China. Uh, we are proving a little bit daily dollar short on some things, obviously the Solomon Islands uh, and Cambodia, now the newest base, um, right? I mean, I, I, it's interesting how you get into that uh, and tell the story about how the Chinese, starting from a very simple satellite station in Argentina, has sort of spun this into a global network of bases that were only now dawning on us that are that they're bases, right? Um, what, what is the administration getting right? What does the administration have to do more of from, from your standpoint? to really be able to, because ultimately this is about deterrent, right? So there's a domination piece and then there's a deterrent piece because the Chinese talk more and more about using military capability and I want to get to that. But what's the administration doing right? Where could it do better? You know, I think President Biden and his foreign policy team have done a fantastic job rhetorically. Uh, and I think they have a very clear and strong um, diagnosis of what the problem is. I mean, when I watched Secretary of State Blinken's recent speech on China, I was struck by how clear-eyed he was about the threat. He describes a genocidal regime that is undermining democracy wherever it goes, uh, and that is highly competitive to the United States. Where I think the administration 
uh, does a very good job, not just in rhetoric, but in practice, is the investments that they're making into infrastructure in the United States. Uh, the work that they're doing in the diplomatic realm to improve our partnerships and our alliances. Where I think there are shortcomings is in this, uh, this idea that we can still somehow do business more or less as normal with the People's Republic of China. And that we actually want to cooperate with them on global issues like climate change and counterproliferation, North Korea and these types of issues. Uh, that seems to me very self-contradictory. I can't think of another moment in American foreign policy history where our president, our, our secretary of state has said, this is a genocidal regime. They are committing genocide. These are gross violations of human rights, but we still want to do more trade with them. And we hope that they'll open up their markets more. To me, that just seems uh, absurd. So what is it that they have to be doing differently from your standpoint? I mean, aside from the trade stuff that we've talked about, right? I mean, what are some of the other elements of this that have to be, you think, strategically different? And how do you condition the entire ecosystem to go along with it? There are going to be people who are going to look at this and say, wait a minute, all of my products are going to get more expensive again on, in, a, in, a, in a short time frame, for example. Uh, and, and right now, the administration is under an enormous amount of pressure to reduce prices, uh, right? Uh, and also uh, is trying to continue sort of the Nixonian strategy of keeping the Chinese and the Russians as separated as they can, right? Uh, and, and trying to use leverage there to not have the Chinese help the Russians out. Uh, and and to keep them, you know, I, I think that they're in an axis anyway, and it's a it's a mistaken, you know, it's a fool's errand. But that's beside the point. Um, what what is it that they should be doing next? And then I want to get into the military elements of this in a very very light uh, fast lightning round with you. Well, I, I don't think it's a fool's errand. Um, well, I, I agree with you, uh, but I, I do think it, it is a mistake for the U.S. government to try to uh, drive a wedge between Russia and China and to convince themselves that they can do that. I mean, yesterday was Xi Jinping's, so yesterday was June 15th, and that was Xi Jinping's 69th birthday. How did Xi Jinping celebrate his birthday? Well, he celebrated his birthday the way he always does, is he called up uh, Putin, because Vladimir Putin is his best friend, and they hang out on their birthdays, and they call each other on their birthdays. Uh, Putin was there with Xi Jinping when Xi Jinping celebrated his 30th wedding anniversary uh, in Xiamen back in uh, 2017. Uh, and then two days later, when they had the BRICS summit in, the, in that same city, that, that was the city where, where Xi Jinping and his wife were married uh, 30, at that time, 30 years ago, uh, Putin and Xi wore the exact same outfit. They wore matching outfits, same tie, same lapel pin, same suit, same color suit. Uh, none of the other world leaders that were gathered there for that summit did that. <laughs> the, the Prime Minister of India did not do that, nor did uh, the representative of South Africa and, and Brazil. Um, Xi Jinping and, and Putin have a remarkably close relationship. Um, and so I think it's, it's a terrible mistake for the United States to try to um, appease um, China or uh, collaborate with China or accommodate China in order to get China to not support Russia's invasion of Ukraine. China is clearly supporting Russia's invasion of Ukraine in every dimension. Um, and so I think we ought to start treating China politically, diplomatically, and otherwise 
there's there's a consensus that the Chinese strategy, uh, the anti-access area denial, the military investment is is basically not necessarily go to war with the United States, but to block the United States and allow it, for example, to do whatever it wants in Asia and, and most particularly uh, retaking uh, Taiwan. What do you think is the window to deter the Chinese from making that kind of calculation, right? I mean, Phil Davidson said six years uh, last year, uh, I've thought it's a much smaller window. From your standpoint, what's our window? Uh, and is that deterrable? You know, if we assume that Xi Jinping and his top political advisors keep an open mind, then our window uh, could still be open for a number of years to come. Uh, but if we assume that they've already made up their mind, that, that actually deterrence has already failed, and that they now have a timeline, and that the clock is ticking, and it's just a matter of, of you know, perhaps just a few years or even months, well, which I certainly don't think is the case, but perhaps just a few years before they actually do launch a war of conquest against Taiwan, uh, then, then we're in big trouble. But in, in either case, we can't say for sure. We don't know what goes on in the mind of Xi Jinping. And that is the, the fundamental challenge that, that we face is his intentions. Ultimately, you know, we can read every book he's, he's ever written. Uh, we can listen to every speech he's ever again, uh, given. We can look at his life story. We can look at all of those around him. Uh, and we can get some very real insights into a lot of different things. And I try to, to, to bring those into this book. But we can't say for sure what he's going to do in the future. We can't predict the future. Um, all we can do is look at what he's doing. And what he's doing today is he is building up the Chinese military with a tremendous, a profound uh, and disquieting degree of urgency. Their buildup across from Taiwan is just incredible. And so I think uh, it would behoove us to, to act accordingly and to do everything we possibly can uh, in the U.S. government and, and the U.S. military to prepare for a worst case scenario, because if we don't prepare, uh, then we're going to, I think, uh, get a worst case scenario. Uh, well, indeed, right. I mean, the whole Chinese strategy is win without fighting, uh, which obviously is a Sun Tzu uh, dictum, uh, right? I mean, present a uh, whole series of fait accomplis. Uh, what are the lessons that Beijing uh, is learning uh, from the Ukraine war and particularly the global response the United States organized against uh, Russia? I mean, is this what, what are the lessons that are being learned, lessons that are being learned by the Chinese, but also lessons that are being learned by the Taiwanese? I, I think there, there's a lot of positive lessons from our perspective that, that have been learned, um, but there's also some negative ones. At, at the highest strategic level, that the key lesson, the key takeaway that I worry that uh, Xi Jinping has, has you know, that, he, that he's learned from this is that nuclear blackmail works, that the United States can be deterred by nuclear threats, and that the United States, when push comes to shove, will not put boots on the ground uh, in a country like Ukraine or like Taiwan that it, it doesn't have a formal uh, treaty alliance with. If that's true, and this is just speculative on my part, and I hope I'm wrong, but if that's true, that this is the lesson Xi Jinping has learned, that could actually accelerate any potential timeline that he has, or if he did not have a timeline before, it could certainly tempt him to, uh, to embrace that idea and to move much more quickly on Taiwan than he otherwise might. I think that's a lesson, though, that the Taiwanese have also learned is that, you know, that, that God helps those who help themselves. 
And so I think there's a movement underway uh, in Taiwan today to assume the worst, assume that the Americans won't come to their rescue and that they have to do much, much more to defend themselves. President Biden uh, has on three separate occasions said that the United States would defend uh, Taiwan, each time uh, drawing the ire of the Chinese. Um, is his statement help? Are his statements helpful? Um, and do they serve a deterrent function with the Chinese? I absolutely think they're helpful. I think it's the right thing to do. Uh, and the next logical step then would be for our president to call the president of Taiwan because he never has. Uh, the net, or at least to tweet that they could tweet at each other uh, or to each other. Uh, to our knowledge, our president has never spoken to the president of Taiwan, which is remarkable when you consider the level of uh, Chinese coercion against Taiwan and the military activities around Taiwan in recent years. Our president has many, many conversations with Xi Jinping, uh, but we continue to treat Taiwan like an international pariah. If this is a country that we're willing to go to war for, uh, at a minimum, I think we need to start at least gradually moving towards diplomatic, uh, normalizing our diplomatic relationship. Uh, that doesn't mean we need to rush. Uh, we could be very thoughtful about how we do it. Uh, but if we're willing to fight for their democracy, I think we ought to show their democracy some, some basic diplomatic respect. And today that is not happening. Indeed, uh, as a nation that is one of the world's uh, most successful democracies and really a model uh, for uh, transition from an authoritarian state into a vibrant, uh, stable, uh, successful and thoughtful democracy. Uh, Ian, uh, thanks very, very much. A pleasure joining you. An important book, as I said, and an important time, and I commend the audience to read it. Um, it has uh, a lot of uh, insights. And, and just very briefly, right, I, I should have asked you this question, and we're over time, uh, but I want to give you 30 seconds on this. You know, what are the source documents that you use to tell the story, right? Because you are quoting things uh, directly from Chinese documents. And it's, and it's very, very different to have somebody sort of telling you what it is that they think that they're saying, as opposed to reading what it is they're actually saying, right? I mean, what are some of the source documents you were using beyond, you know, beyond Xi Jinping's uh, speeches and the like? Yeah, absolutely. So I used what I understand to be the gold standard in the open source community. And so that that's official Chinese military documents, official Chinese um, party documents, uh, planning documents, uh, major speeches, books, including internal uh, leaked PLA documents. So these are the textbooks that they teach officers uh, at China's National Defense University. Ian, thanks so very much again. Uh, and again, look forward to having you back on uh, as a regular to keep us surprised of these uh, situations because there are so many other questions I'd like to ask you. And unfortunately, we don't have any more time, but we'll have you back on again soon. Thanks so very much. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.